The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we bow before you today, not just in holy reverence, but in utter and complete dependence. It is because of you and in you that we have life. It is because of your hand that life continues as it does. It is because of of your working, Father, that we know that tomorrow morning the sun will rise. The rains will come, the crops will grow, but more than all of this, that we will remain yours. So Father, we praise you for your hand. We praise you for your goodness. We thank you for your works. So Father, we're asking that you would continue that work even now. We come together as your people desperate for your word. We don't have the ability to rightly hear it or understand it or believe it apart from your spirit. So we pray, Father, that you would send your spirit now to do what only he could do, to cause this not just to be words on a page, but a sword that penetrates down to our very innermost parts, reveals things that were otherwise hidden, that does surgery on us, carving away at what doesn't belong. And that while we may leave this place with a limp, we will leave it knowing that we have come into communion with the living God and that we have been changed. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. The reverence for the reading of God's word. We return to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're reading as we have been, verse 3 down through verse 14. This is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And all God's people said, Amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Now church, we are coming near the end of this one magnificent sentence. As you all know, verse 3 through 14 in the original Greek was one long sentence. English teachers would have had a field day with Paul's writing. They would have marked it up and told him, this doesn't work, son. And yet what we find here is perhaps the most magnificent word in all of Scripture with regards to the overarching plan of God's redemption of us. So we're nearing the end now, and we've waded through some deep waters, and we've got some deep waters yet ahead. 
So it seems to me important that I look you in the eye and I remind you that what we study is not just doctrine. It's not just empty-headed thoughts. It's not just some interesting facts. It is the very thing that might sustain your life. That there is nothing more practical. There is nothing that will bring you greater understanding in this world than what God has revealed to you here. The word of God is applicable at every single moment. And if this then be true, then the thing that you need most desperately is to see this word and that by the power of God's spirit to understand it. And that's what the Apostle Paul has been highlighting for us these last few weeks. We've been talking about the spiritual gift of wisdom and insight and understanding. That these words written on this page, they're not for the intellectual folks. That your ability to grasp them, they, they are not tied to the power of your brain. As a matter of fact, because of human insight, human knowledge, human intellect, man could never attain to these truths unless God saw fit to reveal it. And we praise God that he has. Again, I tell you, Paul calls this a great spiritual blessing, a lavish grace from God to his chosen people, that he would open our eyes, he would open our ears, he would open our hearts and our minds to not just hear the words, but to understand them, to grow in our perception of them, to grasp firmly to the knowledge of them. Hoping, therefore, that we, having come into contact with God and understood these deep, spiritual truths that these things would sustain us when the world around us gets rocky one of the great blessings of being a pastor is having the opportunity to walk through people it's a gut-wrenching thing it'll rip your heart out but having the opportunity to walk through people through the scariest and the hardest moments of their life and beloved I can tell you that having been in those places having looked those saints in the eye I can tell you that there is no gift quite like knowing I have a Father in heaven and he is in control. Seeing the power of God's hand working in all things at all times for his good purpose. That that's what the Apostle Paul is drawing our mind to this morning. That he's telling us that the key to this life That the key to enduring, the key to suffering well, is being able to look beyond the physical, being able to look beyond the immediate, being able to look beyond the earthly and on to the eternal and the spiritual and the lasting things of God. Now let me be very clear. The Apostle Paul is not here saying that this world is inconsequential. You see, there's a couple of ditches that man can tend to fall into. For the vast majority of the world... I dare say even for the vast majority of the American church, they fall into this position of almost purely materialism, that this world is all that there is. Now, they won't speak in those terms. They'll tip their hat to the spiritual world. They'll talk about all glory going to God, and they know that there are angels and there are demons and there's a heaven and there's a hell. They know that when their body goes into the ground and turns to dust, that their soul will live on forever somewhere. They say these things with their lips, but they live their lives completely contrary to that. They live as though the physical and the immediate is all that there is, or at least all that matters. I challenge you to go and listen to the words that are spoken from some pulpits just like this. You show up on a Sunday morning, and what you find is a bunch of practical tips for how to live this life. Bunch of practical tips for how you can live now in a godly way while never paying attention to the true spiritual force that must be at work, the spiritual power of God that must be at work within us if we're to have any hope of doing that which the Scripture commands. The rest of the world, however, those who don't even think about God, they devote their lives to the material, to the physical, to the earthly, to the immediate. That's one ditch. The other ditch, though, is to become much like the Gnostics of old. Those people who come and they know that the spiritual is the true. They know that the spiritual is the eternal. They know the spiritual is that which will carry on forever. And therefore, they think that that means that the earthly has no purposes in God's plan. That the earthly means nothing. That the earthly is either bad or completely inconsequential. And yet that's not where the Apostle Paul is showing us either. 
Because you'll recall that the text we considered last week was this, that God has a plan for the fullness of time. What did I tell you last week? Every moment matters. Every second matters. Every instance matters with regards to God's good and perfect and eternal plan. But he didn't just say that there was a plan for the fullness of time. He revealed to us that that plan was to unite all things in Christ. Everything matters too. Everything and every second and every moment, the most physical of things in this life, all of them matter. All of them find themselves at the end of this life summed up in Christ Jesus so that we can know that no matter where we are, no matter what season we find ourselves in, no matter what challenge we face, we know that God has a plan even in this. The scripture can mean what it says when it says that God is working all things for our good. And so we don't dismiss the physical things and we don't worship the physical things. We don't act as if the physical things don't matter, but we don't act as though they're everything. We keep our eyes focused on the horizon, on Christ Jesus, who is working in all of them. So we can count every, every moment as precious. Every moment is holy. Everything is belonging to God, trusting that he has a plan in this. And that that plan is to sum them all up, all things in heaven and things on earth, to have them all summed up in Christ Jesus. Now I need to make one more point of reminder, one more point of, one more point. Let's call it a point. One more point here. We considered Colossians 1.16 last week, and we talked about the preeminence of Christ, that it is by Christ that all things are created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that all things were created by Christ and for Christ, that it is in him by his blood that God is reconciling all things to himself. Now, of course, the answer there is not that everyone will be saved. The answer is not that everyone will enjoy the eternal kingdom of God. We know that cannot be true. Scripture plainly teaches that there will be many, perhaps most of this world, that will not find the narrow path and the hard way that leads to eternal life. That there will be many who find themselves being glorified of God in his wrath. But we do know that all things in the end will bow before King Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Some of those knees will be bowing. Some of those tongues will be confessing in absolute terror, knowing that they have utterly wasted this life. For us, for the saints, for those whom God has called and chosen, for those who find ourselves faithful in Christ Jesus, we will find ourselves with great joy and delight, bowing and confessing that Jesus Christ is is Lord. But recognizing that those whom we stand before on a day-to-day -day basis, we don't always know who's who. We'll be standing before some that will be joined with us in that angelic chorus singing out praises to God in all eternity. While there will be others who will be cast in the lake of fire for all eternity. We don't know who's who. And yet what we call them to, when we call them to set their eyes on Christ Jesus, what we call them to when we call them to submit to Jesus as king of the earth, we call them to the only source of true unity that can ever be found. That what God is offering us here is true unity. Now the world, they always offer to us some sense of false unity. I want you to go all the way back to the beginning to the Tower of Babel. Man, always seeking to reconcile themselves to themselves. How often do you hear this? The world talking about how we've all just got to come together. That was a the theme of the 80s, wasn't it? All the Coca-Cola commercials are about us all just coming together as brothers and sisters and loving one another. This picture of utopia that the world has promised to us, if we'll just follow their paths, we'll just follow their ways. But we know that that's a fool's errand. We know that there is no unity apart from Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to be united to your brothers. You want to be reconciled to your brothers. You want true and lasting peace. Then the only hope is to preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. To lay the gospel before their eyes and to pray with everything within you that he would send his spirit to receive and to believe it. But I need to be very clear at this point. What we are calling people to is a person and not a plan. That God has said that he is uniting all things in 
Christ Jesus, not just in the principles that Jesus preached. See, again, I tell you, if you go to many pulpits, many churches throughout the country, and you listen to what comes from the pulpits, what you'll find them doing is preaching to men as if we would just follow the precepts of Christ Jesus, the ultimate teacher, the greatest preacher, if we would just follow his ways, if we would just follow his teaching, if we would just follow his principles, then we would be united. But that's not what he says. He says that God is not uniting all things in a plan, but in a purpose, in a person, excuse me, in Christ. That Christ hasn't come to give us some blueprint, some pattern to follow. It wasn't as though God sent his son from heaven to tell the people, this is the path you must follow, and then you'll be reconciled to me. This is the way to true lasting peace. Now go out and make it happen. That's not the picture at all. You see, what happens if we hold on to that kind of thinking? The problem if we fall into that kind of trap is we are now just one voice among many calling out to the world, we've got a better plan. We've got a different way. You've tried in your own efforts to bring unity and peace and reconciliation through earthly means. Now try them through biblical means, by your own power, by your own working. The problem is we're speaking to dead men. The problem is when we cry out to the world, we're crying out to those who cannot cling to the word of God. And so I remind you this morning that what those people need, and I speak most specifically to those within your house, because those are the ones you're most concerned with, isn't it? It's your children. It's your spouse. It's your brothers or your sisters or your parents. So I remind you this morning that what your parents and your children and your brothers and your sisters and all those that are most dear to you, what they need most is not reprogramming. They don't need a couple of new chips, a couple of new thoughts, a couple of new insights, a couple of new paths laid out before them. What they need is not reprogramming. What they need is redemption. You see, we can hold out before people the words of Romans 12 too, that man should not be conformed to this world but be transformed through the renewing of his mind. That's a good and lofty thought. Those are the words of Scripture, right? So we can go out to the world and we can tell them, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. This world is following after the prince of the power of the air. You're following after sons of disobedience. You yourself are a child of wrath. Therefore, no longer be conformed to that pattern, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. How? Fine. How? Some new thoughts? Some new blueprint to follow? How do I renew my mind? How do I bring about transformation? See, because Paul said in that same letter that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You're calling men to do something they cannot do. This letter that Paul wrote, this call to be transformed in the renewing of our mind, this was a call to Christian people. This will call who those who are in the Spirit, those who have the Spirit of God within them. Because we know that the natural person cannot understand the things of God. It's foolishness to them. It's gibberish to them. That unless God works, unless God, by the working of his Spirit, transforms their minds, gives them eyes to see and ears to hear, we're calling them to do the impossible. And that will only lead to frustration. So that when we come into a church like this, recognizing there will be people here who don't yet know Christ, at very least amongst our children, there will be people here who know nothing about Christ, that while it is good to point them towards God's law, this doesn't mean that God's law has no place. Of course it does. There's a great debate that kind of seems to be kind of swirling around in reform circles right now, and it's the question of theonomy. That's two words brought together, theos meaning God and namas meaning law. And the, the question is, should the world around us be ruled by God's law? Should countries and nations and cities and states, should they be ruled by God's law? Now, of course, as with all things, there are extremes. People will take it too far and they'll say, well, every bit of what we find in the Old Testament should be applied here and you can't eat shrimp. And if, if a woman has that time of month, she needs to go outside the city course that's not appropriate but I guess the question I would have for people that say that God's law has no place in the public square that God's law has no place in the public discourse whose law then should we follow autonomy self 
law? The laws of this world? So certainly God's law has a place because in that law he is revealing to us himself, his good and his righteous and his perfect standard for holiness. And we teach this law even to the non-believer. You teach it to your children, don't you? Do you not teach your children to obey their father, to honor their father and their mother? Do you not teach them not to steal, not to kill, not to lie, not to smooch on women that aren't their wives? Of course you do. And so, yes, we keep the law of God before their eyes, and yet we know that at every single moment they lack the ability to truly honor it, to truly honor and to please God. That's why the promise of the new covenant wasn't just, I'm going to give you a new set of laws. What does he say through Ezekiel? I will put my spirit within you. What does he say through Jeremiah? I will write my law with on your heart. Not a new law. Not a different law. The same law that had revealed God's nature since the very beginning. I will imprint that upon your heart that you might walk in obedience to it. I will put my spirit within you that you might delight. You might find it a joy that you walk in true, holy ways. So I tell you all this as a reminder that what we are preaching to men when we call them to unity in Christ Jesus is not unity around a plan. It is not unity around some different way to do life. It isn't even unity around coming and joining up your life to a church. It's unity in a person, Christ Jesus our Lord. One body, one bride, one church, one people. But that's the only path to true biblical unity. And therefore, it must begin here in the church and the people of God, in his body. How concerned did the Apostle Paul, read through his letters, how concerned does the Apostle Paul seem to be with making clear that we are one people in Christ? How concerned does he seem to be to calling us back to finding that unity that we first found in him? Church, we've got to remember that this is the only hope we have for staying together as one. It is only in Christ Jesus. And oh, how easy it is to lose that way. We come together as one dedicated to submitting our lives to Jesus Christ as Lord. We come together as one that are united under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wretches all, saved by grace. We come together, we find ourselves united in the beginning by that, and then our minds begin to wander, and our personalities begin to come out, and our own interests begin to rear their ugly heads, and then the division comes. So I remind you today, church, that this unity is not just a call for the world to come and be united in Christ Jesus. It's the only hope of unity that we have today, that the moment we allow ourselves to take our eyes off the ball, the moment that we become distracted with regards to what God's plan is for his people, that is the moment that our unity fades. I need you to know that on Monday mornings when we gather as a staff and we pray, one of the primary prayers of my heart for you is this. Dear God, don't allow us to take the unity that you have given us for granted. Now this is going to be a very disconcerting thing to people that don't see this as the primary and ultimate thing. You see, if your primary goal is with regards to music styles, the personality of your preacher, some particular area, particular area of ministry within the church, then certainly you're going to find it very off-putting whenever a church charges hard after one singular thing. When a church becomes singular-minded, we charge after Christ Jesus, and we trust that in him, he's going to bring us all together. He's going to be the one that binds us all together. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. Listen, we have fellowships and we break bread because it's good, because food tastes good. But fellowships, that's not going to bring the unity. We show up at each other's ball games because that's right and that's good and that's loving. But that's not going to bring unity. We gather together in each other's homes for Sunday school fellowships. We come to each other during times of weeping and mourning. We send each other notes of encouragement. We show up at each other's birthday parties. We do all of those things, but those won't bring true unity. It's only in Christ Jesus. So this is why whenever we have our new members class, our membership, I quit calling it new members class because none of you old members are coming. Membership class, we talk about this. Those of you that just went through it, it's a five-hour class. Four hours of it, nothing but the gospel. 
It's nothing but holding up Christ Jesus and saying, if God is going to build a church, it's going to be built in Christ. It's not going to be through programs. It's not going to be through patterns. It's not going to be through any earthly means. It's only going to be in Christ. So I'll plead with you this morning, make him the center and the all in all. If you find yourself feeling disconnected from this church, if you find yourself wondering, where is my place within this church? If you find yourself wondering, what direction is God leading this church? I plead with you, get your eyes fixed on Christ Jesus. Search the scriptures and say, God, just show me your son more clearly. Show me your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. And beloved, I promise you, if we would do that, if every single one of us would do that, we would find a a bond so tight, wild horses would not be able to separate us ever not because of any offense not because of any frustration not because someone has stepped upon your toes or failed you you would find yourself bound together in a way that only he can do and nothing would ever tear that apart so with that in mind we come to this morning's text knowing that we are a people who have been united together in Christ Jesus knowing that this is a spiritual work that only he can do knowing that it's a lavish grace for him to have shown us that this was his plan so that we're not all scattered. I want you to know what the purpose is, right? RD, I don't want you showing up thinking the purpose to showing up today is to make the best coffee. And then Alan, you show up today and you think the purpose to us showing up today is to sing the prettiest songs. Then Andrew, you show up today and you say the purpose for us gathering today is to just encourage one another. No, I want you to know that as you make the coffee, as you sing the songs, and as you encourage your brother, the purpose is that we would be one in Christ. I want you to know the plan. And it's not my plan. It's the plan that I've received from the God of the universe as he has entrusted it to the Apostle Paul and he has handed it down to us. So we come to verse 11 where we read that in him, that is Christ, the same Christ in whom we are united, that in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, if you're reading, if you're reading in the ESV as I am, there's a word that is missing there. Now, this was a translator's decision. They didn't accidentally leave the word out. They determined that the word didn't belong. But if you're reading in the NASB, you'll find the word also there. Now, it's in the original Greek. The word chi is there. It can be translated as and or also. But what he's saying here is that in him, in Christ... Also, we have obtained an inheritance. And I I like the word also being in there because it reminds us that Paul is just piling up spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing. That's what he's been doing all throughout this letter. When he talks about election and adoption and redemption and justification and forgiveness and now an inheritance. He's piling up these every spiritual blessings and he says, oh, but wait, there's more an inheritance. So he says here that in him, in Christ, we also have obtained an inheritance. Now, there's great discussion, great debate about what does Paul mean here when he says that we have obtained an inheritance. This, the way that it's spoken in the original language, this is a, this is a passive verb. This is something that is happening to us. And so some men, they translate it just like this, saying that this is a thing that has been gifted to us. We have received an inheritance. Other men believe that what is being said here in the original Greek is that we are being given as an inheritance. So the question is, is this us being given as a gift or a gift that has been given to us? Are you tracking with me? Now in theological terms, they're both true. Go back and read the the, the text that David read for us this morning or all throughout the Old Testament. We know that theologically that we ourselves have received an inheritance and that we have been given as a heritage, as a portion unto the Lord. Deuteronomy 4.20, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance. I think, I I believe that if man would grasp this, if the Christian would grasp this, 
that you have been chosen as God's portion. Then Amos 3, whenever he says that you and you alone have I known amongst all the families of the earth, that the God of the universe in his heart and in his mind and in his plan, knowing all the universe and every family and every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people and every individual soul, he says, I have chosen you as my portion, as my inheritance. I believe it would completely transform the way that we approach him, the way that we pray to him, the way that we worship him, the way that we handle our sin We would believe the words of Zephaniah 3.17, that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who, who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I see some of you mothers, and you come limping in here. You come dragging in here, and you've wanted to strangle your little children all week long. When you finally laid them down in bed at night, you didn't exult over them with great singing. You didn't rejoice over them with gladness. You just prayed to God you could make it one more day. But we're reminded that the God of the universe, the one against whom we have sinned, and rebelled and continued to show our hardened hearts. He has chosen us as his portion, as his inheritance, and he delights over us. He rejoices over us. He sings over us. Not because we're the prettiest, not because we're the greatest. Go back to Deuteronomy 7. Because he loved you. Because he loved you. Why have you loved me, God? Because I loved you? We sing so many songs. What do I call them? Jesus is my boyfriend songs. We sing so many misplaced, stupid pop songs. Where we just throw the name of Jesus or the name of God in and pretend, therefore, that they are words of praise. But these are words you can really sing. But we also know that we ourselves have received a heritage, a portion, an inheritance. You see, if we look just down the page here in Ephesians 1, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So it's absolutely true to say that we ourselves are receiving an inheritance, a portion in the Lord. And I I tend to think that's probably the direction that the Apostle Paul is going with this, both because of the context of what comes next, but also if we look over at the parallel in the book of Colossians. Colossians 1.12 where he says that we're to give thanks to the Father, he is giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. There's a picture of God qualifying us. You're not qualified for this inheritance. You've not made the cut. If there was someone who made the cut, it wasn't you. But the God of the universe has qualified you that you might be holy and blameless and pure in Christ. He has done everything necessary, not just to secure the inheritance, but to qualify you for the inheritance. So I I tend to think that that's probably what he's pointing at here but we need to be reminded as well that what we have in terms of a royal and eternal inheritance is not a bunch of stuff it is not a land it is not a it is not money it is not horses it is not a house it is not a family that ultimately what our heritage is is God himself Psalm 16 5 the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup we're reminded that The tribe of Levi, whenever they came into the promised land and all the people were getting their inheritance, all the tribes were getting their inheritance. Your boundaries are this. This is your inheritance. And they they guarded that very closely, right? Within the tribes, within the families, always wanting to pass this heritage on, pass this portion on, pass this inheritance on to make sure that it trickled down to their children. But he said to the tribe of Levi, you are separate. You are set apart. Not a land will you receive but me, I am your portion. 
Don't you see how much greater that is? Genesis 15.1, he says to Abraham, Fear not, Abraham, I am your great shield, your very great reward. That God himself is your reward. That he who is all in all, he who has all the cattle on a thousand hills and all the silver and all the gold, all the ends of the earth are mine and I am yours. I hold time in my hands. All things serve my good purposes and I am yours. Do you see how much greater this is? Psalm 73, 25. Whom, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How badly I wish this for you. How badly I wish this for myself. Don't you see this is where the Apostle Paul's heart is all throughout his writings? He can lose it all. I've already written it off anyway because God is my portion. My strength may fail. My health may fail. My family may fail. I may lose every dollar that I have, but I can't lose the thing that is most because I am his and he is mine. So we see this. Go read Jeremiah 10, 16 today where it talks about him being our portion and him being our heritage while we are his inheritance. It's like a marriage, isn't it? You see this, the mutual self-giving, us giving ourselves over to God and God giving himself over to us. It's all his working. It's all his planning. It's all his purposing. But you see this perfectly in this. Sometimes we'll joke in my house. I've got a lot, lot of life insurance. I'm a big believer in life insurance. You can get it for pretty cheap when you're young. So I say get as much as you can. I had to wrestle with, <laughs> I had to wrestle with the insurance company. They said, you make this much money and you think you need this much life insurance? I said, well, I'd like my wife to not have to get remarried if she doesn't want to. So if y'all see her bringing around some guy, you better know he's got a lot to offer because she doesn't need his money. But we'll joke sometimes about how I'm worth more dead than I am alive. And they don't like when I joke like that. Because we don't want your stuff, we want you. We want a husband and we want a father. But how often do we approach God in the opposite manner? He says, I am here and I am yours and I cannot be lost. He said, but what you got for me? What? That's right. That's right, Lando. And so we see how this thing comes, though, even in stages to us. We see here in verse 11 that we have obtained the inheritance. Then in verse 14 it says, until we acquire possession of it. And we see this tension all throughout this letter as Paul talks about it's already now seated in the heavenly places and we have already received all spiritual blessings and yet we're always forward-looking. There's always this tension throughout the Bible that we're always looking forward to a greater manifestation, a greater realization, a, a, a greater greater reception of the things that are already ours, and yet they're never in doubt. 1 Peter 1.4 talks about God, how he has caused us. This is a text that Haley recites for us every, every single Sunday morning. That God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance, that this inheritance is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and being kept for us in heaven. That's an awful lot like the words of Jesus when he talks about things that moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot steal. That we don't need to be worried that this thing is dissipating. That maybe somebody else is getting my portion. That is there and it is secure for all eternity. But he goes on to say that we, the ones who have this royal inheritance, the ones who have this, this imperishable inheritance, the ones who can look forward in faith and know that it will be there when the day comes, who can have so much confidence it is there that we can enjoy it even now. It says that we are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed at the last time. That our salvation, I mean our, our inheritance is being guarded and that we are being guarded for it. Do you see? So you might get anxious, right? Okay, God, you'll hold me fast. You'll hold me in your hand as yours and you will never let go. But what's going to be left for me at the end? Or maybe you've got this great treasure trove of yourself to give to me in eternity, but what if you let loose and I get lost along the way? And he says, neither will happen. 
By the same power that I have secured and hold fast to your inheritance, I am guarding you this day. Because you are precious. And your inheritance is precious. And I'm not going to let either one of them slip away. So then, the Apostle Paul returns again to the question. This is really the theme. We started off, when we got to verse 3, we first began our journey through this magnificent sentence. The question at hand, the question that should be on our minds is, how? You see, we always come to the text with questions. That's the right way to read Scripture. You come to God with questions, always probing, always wanting to see more, not trying to invent things, not trying to see things that aren't there, but asking why. We should be like little three-year-olds. Why, 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 how, how, how? So many men, they just recite these biblical platitudes, and you ask them, well, what's that mean? They got no clue. So we come to the text, and we ask, how? How did this happen? How did we receive this inheritance while others didn't? Or as I asked it when we were in verse 3, how does one man come to be saved while so many others, even others living within the same home, even a twin brother, how does one come to be saved? How does one come to receive Christ? How does one come to have this eternal inheritance and the other remain lost for all eternity? How? Well, Paul says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Now, you all are familiar with that word by now. We've read it every week, and we studied it at great length when we were back up in verse 5. Prorizo is the word. It's, it's, pro means before or, or, or prior to. Arizo means a destination or a, an appointed end, something that's been determined. So as we see this prorizo, it is a destination, a determination, something that's been appointed prior to. And I told you back when we first studied this word, when we're talking about God, prior to is before everything. Before the foundation of the world is the way the Apostle Paul speaks about it. Now this is somewhat different from God's election, God's choosing of us. Paul has great concern for that as well. He talks about that in verse 3, that God has called us, he has chosen us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. So election deals with the who, while predestination deals with the where. He has not just chosen a people unto himself. He has determined where those people will go. He has determined what the end for these people will be. 1 Corinthians 1.30 speaks about the fact that it is because of God that we are in Christ. Well, what's the end of that being in Christ? Well, it's this, that we would have an inheritance. That we would receive God in eternity. But what does predestination have to do with this? Why is he dragging this back out? We've talked about this predestination with regards to being sons of God, but what does that have to do with this inheritance? Well, everything. If you look at verse 5, it says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It is this adoption as sons which qualifies us for the inheritance. That's the way inheritance works, particularly in that day and age. In the ancient Near East, a man wanted a son to inherit. I want you to think about Abraham. Abraham had great concern when God came to him and told him all the things that would be his, all the things that God was promising. And what was Abraham's response? But I don't have a son. Won't a slave in my house then receive everything that is mine? But God's promise was that no, your inheritor will not be one from your household. It will be a son of promise. Romans 8, 16 the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That this is the joint, this is the picture, this is what Paul is drawing together for us. That he's saying we have been predestined for adoption to God as sons through Jesus Christ. What's the end of that adoption? What comes because of that adoption? This inheritance. So he circles back to the concept of predestination when he talks about how that inheritance came to be ours. Are you tracking? Now, anytime we begin to talk about predestination, and I know this is controversial stuff. I, don't, I hate the word controversial because it's not. It's in the Bible. But it is a thing that gets people very anxious at times when we start talking about election and, and predestination. And most often, whenever I sit down and I talk to somebody about this, about the fact that it is God who chooses, it is God who elects, it is God who predestines, not because of anything within man, 
the response I most often get, the objection I most often get, is that I am then making God into someone who is arbitrary or capricious, that God is just arbitrarily choosing men. He's just closing his eyes, spinning in a circle, and throwing a dart. How is that right, that God would just arbitrarily choose one man and not choose another? Well, it seems as though the Apostle Paul was anticipating this response because he doesn't just talk about God's predestining. What does he say here? Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. I want you to take note of every time that the Apostle Paul says according to throughout these verses. Verse 5, predestined for adoption according to the purpose of his will. Verse 7, redemption and forgiveness according to the riches of his grace. Verse 9, made to know the mystery of God's will according to his purpose. And now here in verse 11, obtaining an inheritance according to God's purpose. It seems as though Apostle Paul is very eager for us to understand that God never acts or thinks or does or works in any way that isn't in accordance with his nature, accordance with his plans and his purposes because of who he is. He says here that it's in accordance with his purpose. Again, that there's nothing arbitrary, there's nothing random, there's nothing haphazard about God's predestining. If you look back through this text, I've got circled within my Bible all the times that God uses these words that make clear that there is purpose in this. Just last week, think in verse 10, we came against the word plan. The word plan, that God has a plan for the fullness of time, an administration, a carrying out of his purposes for the fullness of time. He says here that it's according to his purpose. Now, again, we saw the word purpose up in verse 5 and verse 9. I told you then that the Greek word can actually be translated as good pleasure. The Apostle Paul wants to make clear to us that God's choices weren't limited by anything external to himself. That all these things that God has done, they did them because it pleased him. His hands weren't tied. He wasn't limited to just these finite decisions. That the world is his, that his power is infinite, and anything he does, therefore, is according to his good pleasure. But then there's a different word that's used here for purpose in verse 11. This word can be translated as aim or intent. We see the Apostle Paul praising Timothy in his second letter to him. 2 Timothy 3.10, he praises him because you have held to the aim of my life, to the intent of my life, to the target of my life. So we see here he's saying that not only does God act according to his good pleasure, not only is he carrying out a well-thought-out plan, but he's doing this with an aim in mind with a target. You see the way he just keeps piling up these words. Now, how does God determine what his aim is? How does he determine what his target is? Well, he says here that he is doing it according to the counsel of his will. Now, the word counsel here, it's boule. It means, well, with regards to man, what does a counsel mean? It means that I've called people together. I'm always seeking counsel, am I not? I just thanked a brother this morning for some wise, godly, biblical counsel that he gave me something that I was blinded to so scripture calls us to surround ourselves with godly men who can give us wise counsel so what is counsel it's a consideration as you bring together the minds of others but with regards to God he takes no counsel with anyone other than himself scripture says this Isaiah 40 who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows God his counsel whom did God consult when he, and who made him understand who taught God the path of justice, taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Hypothetical questions, rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is no one. And yet it seems that the Apostle Paul is eager for us to understand here that God didn't just aim at some arbitrary target. He didn't aim at some thoughtless target, that it was a well-thought-out plan. Taking counsel with himself, deliberating within himself, he came up with this, this plan. And so we see the Apostle Paul just heading us off at every turn. What's one of the favorite sayings? It's kind of dying out now, but one of the favorite sayings of the last 10 years, it is what it is. In essence, what people are saying is, I don't know, life just happens. Just is what it is. But the Apostle Paul seems to be coming before us and he's saying, no, God has a plan. And so we can anticipate our hearts going, yeah, well, he has a plan for the whole of the universe. I mean, he has a plan for where this thing's going to end up, but not like individual people. So he jumps ahead. He goes, no, 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 no. God chose. God elected before the foundation of the world. 
They said, well, yeah, okay, well, maybe, but he just chose randomly, right? I mean, because we're all messed up. So he just, he just closed his eyes and picked out of a hat. No, 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 no. He chose according to his own wise counsel. You go, okay, well, yeah, his own wise counsel, but his choices were limited because of the sin of man and because of free will and all these things. No, 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 He chose because it was his good pleasure. He chose what delighted him. He said, okay, well, then probably he chose in because he saw something good in those people. He saw the ones that were gonna choose him. He saw the ones that were gonna have faith. He chose, he saw the ones that were the best. That's, that's, no, 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 no. He did it before the foundation of the world. Do you see? Paul has stripped away any kind of sense of autonomy in this, any kind of sense of man's working in any of this. And there's one more question yet to be answered, right? See, God has a plan and God has a purpose and God has a foreordination and all these things. The next question is, but is he actually working it out? Like it's one thing for the God of the universe, for the God who created everything, to have a plan and a purpose and a counsel and an intent and an aim and a target and a well-thought-out decree for all of, all of creation. But is he actually getting involved? Is he actually moving the pieces? Is he actually governing the things in this life? Paul's got an answer. He says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works. He works. He is actively working in and through and upon his creation. He is working in all things to guarantee that his plan and his purpose and his counsel and all these things that he's aimed at will come to pass. Working all things according to the counsel of his will. Now we are running short on time. So I don't have time to fully unpack the concept of the different ways in which Scripture uses the word will. But if you will go back and you will listen to the sermon that I preached when we talked about Paul being called an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, you'll remember that there are two different ways in which Scripture uses the term will. That God's will for us is our sanctification, that we would abstain from sexual immorality. And yet that doesn't always happen. God's will is that we would love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And we know every day men are disregarding that will. But then all throughout Scripture, there is a will of God that is spoken about, spoken about that is the most powerful force in all the universe. Inalterable, irresistible, guaranteed to happen. Prophet Daniel spoke about that. Daniel 4.35 God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say to his hand or say to him, why, what have you done? Again, that God works. He doesn't just purpose. He doesn't just plan. He doesn't just aim. He works, and that no man can stay his hand, not just in this, the salvation of his saints, but in all things. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10, I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That God is absolutely, totally sovereign. We throw that word around a lot. We throw that word around a lot here. Speaking about God's sovereignty. Sovereignty just means the power, the authority, the right to do whatever you want. That no one has the power to look to God and say, why are you doing this? Stop. No one has the authority to question his judgment. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Job 42.1, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That God's sovereignty means no one can stop him. No one can question him. He has the authority to do everything that he wants, but he goes beyond that. You see, that speaks to God's sovereignty, but then there's another aspect, that's his working, his providence, his moving, his bringing about the things. He doesn't just have the ability and the authority, he actually works. That's what Paul's saying here. Proverbs 16, 33, I, I'll, I'll post these later, okay? How about that? Because Leanne's hand's gonna fall off trying to write these down. I will post them later. But you know some of these, right? Proverbs 16, 33 says that man casts the lot in his lap. It's rolling of a dice, it's a flipping of a coin, but it is God who determines its outcome. He talks about, Jesus himself speaks about a sparrow falling from the sky that not a single sparrow dies. I read somewhere this week that something like three billion birds die every day. Not a one of them dies 
apart from God. The hairs on your head, the days of your life, the stars in the sky, kings that set, in Daniel 2, 21, he talks about kings that he sets up on a throne, and then kings that he takes down. Joshua 10, when he causes the sun to stand still in the sky and the moon to remain in its place. Over and over and over again. Go through your scripture, with a ye- through your Bible with a yellow highlighter. Highlight all the times that you see God acting in his sovereignty. Providential control in the most minute of things. And not just in inanimate things, in the lives of men. That's where it gets personal. You can move birds. You can even take all the hairs off my head. But keep your hands off my heart. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wills. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans of the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Listen, I do not reject the thousands upon thousands of scriptures that make clear that man makes choices. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Over and over and over again, the Bible calls us to make wise choices. It makes clear that we will answer to God for those choices because they come from the heart. Because no one forces us to make those choices. We choose what we most strongly desire at any given moment. And yet scripture says that it is God who turns the heart. It is God who directs the ways. Now it's easy to accept this when things are going well, right? It's easy to accept God's providence. I want you to think about this. How many times have you heard a story from someone and they said, you know, I was headed to the store and I got delayed. I had a flat tire. I had a phone call. I left my purse in the house. I turned around. I went back. I got my purse. I got in my car. I took off and there was a wreck five seconds ahead of me. Isn't that providential? And we all celebrate because yes, absolutely. That was the hand of God sparing you from that wreck but beloved you need to hear me if you think that was providential because you were spared from the wreck you don't understand providence because by the same providential hand of God someone else got mashed Isaiah 45 7 I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Psalm 105:23. The Lord made speaking of Egypt, the Lord made his people very fruitful, and he made them stronger than their foes, and he turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people and to deal craftily with them. Beloved, if you only hold to God's providence in the good things, the things that look good to your eyes, you don't know the providence of God. I create calamity. He is working in all things. You all are very familiar with the words of the early church in Acts 2 and in Acts 4. You see, if we can't have God working in calamity, if we can't have him working even in the most abject of sinful deeds in the history of man, you don't have a cross of Jesus Christ. Acts 2, 22. You see Peter preaching to the people and he says that Jesus has been delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, this Jesus whom you have delivered up. It was by the definite plan and foreknowledge of of God. In Acts 4:27 we see them praying, for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Do you understand what this means? Who were the sinners in this thing? Was Judas a sinner for handing over Jesus? Yes, and it went as it had been written of him. Was Pilate a coward and a sinner for handing over Jesus to be crucified? Yes, and God's plan and his hand predestined it. 
Were the Jews sinners for crying out, crucify him, crucify him? Yes, and God's hand and his plan predestined it. Were the Gentile sinners for nailing him to a cross and mocking him on that day? Yes, and God's hand and his plan predestined it. You've got to do something with this. You've got to somehow come to the scripture and have some room for the thought that the God of the universe can ordain and work in and plan and predestine even the most vile of sins and never once be an author or a condoner or a planter of sin that he can manage and he can govern and he can direct and he can arrange, and he can uphold, and he can steer, but sin comes from the hearts of men. Because again, I tell you, if you do not have this, you don't have a gospel. You have the God of the universe making lemonade out of lemons and responding to the sins of men. You have men able to step outside the providential control of God. Do you understand this? That if God is not providentially working all things, even sin, to his glory, then there is no one more powerful in all the world than the greatest sinner because he is the one who is outside God's providential control. So I take you all the way back to the garden. When man sinned against God, God didn't just show up and say, I promise that by the offspring of woman, this serpent's head shall be crushed. He immediately made them garments from the skins of an animal. Do you understand? He didn't just speak, he didn't just plan, he didn't just promise, he worked. And we see him working all throughout redemptive history. Placing his people inside of a boat to spare them. Calling a man from Ur of the Chaldees and bringing him despite his faithlessness. Working by the powerful might of his hand to bring his people out of slavery. Sending his son, Christ Jesus, to die for your sins. And then by that same powerful, providential working, he brings you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, calls you to life, and causes you to call out in repentant faith. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, I know how tempting it is, because we say all of this is to the praise of his glory. What is the purpose in all this? Paul doesn't leave us any room to land on anything else. It is all to the praise of his glory. And you think, well, But that's not very glorious. That doesn't seem glorious to me, that God is actually steering and managing and ordaining sin. And wouldn't it be more glorious if God could just take all these random things and wrap them up at the end? That seems more glorious to me. Well, nobody asked you. Do you understand? My feelings about what is glorious Don't dictate who God is. God is glorious. And it is my job to submit to the glorious God of Scripture. And it's not just a tough take it. Here's the good news in this. He is always better. Don't you understand? I'm not saying tough, suck it up and live with it. I'm saying there's more here. You'll find real joy in this because this God who I've just, said, I've just told you works even in the evil things. He says that he is working all things for your good so that we can look at men like Job, like Joseph, like Jonah, who said I couldn't do alliteration. That's a three-point sermon right there. He can look at men like Job and Joseph and Jonah and he can say right now because the way providence works is you can only see it looking backwards. You never see it in the moment. You never understand it in the moment. So when we're in a place like this right now and things are calm, you've got to settle in your heart. Even in the evil, God is working for my good. He's not lost control. So that when you're in the belly of a whale because of your own sin, you're able to look to the God of the universe and say, for my good, I trust you that my sin hasn't thwarted your good for my life. I trust you that my sin hasn't disrupted your plan. I trust you that I am here because you have ordained it. Now what are you going to do? Lead me in the path of righteousness so that when you're in jail because of someone else's sin against you like Joseph, because your brothers have betrayed you, when you're languishing away your prime years in prison going, God, if you forgot me, your heart can draw you back and you can go, nope, my good, even in this. 
My brothers have not thwarted God's plan for my life. Or when your whole family dies because a wind comes and blows their house over during a party. And there's no rational explanation. Not my sin, not your sin. Seemingly meaningless tragedy. You can look to the heavens and say, you have given and you have taken away. Will I receive good from your hand and not curse? Even in this, you are working for my good. Do you see why I tell you this is the most practical thing in all the universe? Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that you are working all things for our good and that nothing in all this universe can thwart your plans. We thank you that it is a wise and good and holy plan. We thank you that the purpose isn't for the evil. The purpose isn't for the pain. The purpose is for your glory and for our good. So Father, we ask you to help us to receive this as so much more than just some intellectual doctrine just some interesting thoughts, just a thing that causes people to get upset and leave a church or to, or to become anxious. But that, Father, we would see that in this there is true hope. There is true joy for life. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.